So we are continuing in our series. We're doing a quick four-week series called Gospel Distinctions, and we're looking at what makes the gospel uh, unique in contrast to what it is that the world offers. And last week, we looked at uh, this truth that the world, the best thing the world can offer is just a continued state of disease. We're not getting better. We're weak. We're fallen. We're sick. But Christ offers true healing. So we looked at sin as a disease and Jesus as our healer. And tonight we're going to look at another angle. What we're going to see tonight is we're going to look at the idea of sin as a power, as, as an oppression, as a power, as a weight, but then Christ as humanity's only liberator, as the one who brings freedom to those who are enslaved. Sin as a power and Jesus as humanity's liberator, their hero. And uh, I went to school here and I did broadcast journalism. I hosted, I anchored sports talk shows, uh, newscasts. I emceed the inauguration for Royce Ingstrom. Um, I've preached hundreds of sermons. I've done a lot of public speaking in my life, but the most terrified and most nervous I've ever been for any sort of public speech actually came in uh, a speech class in high school. And I remember uh, Mr. Meeks was his name. Uh, he rolled into our speech class this TV, and that's always a good sign when you're in high school and they roll on a TV. And he starts to play for us Braveheart, that epic speech at the end of Braveheart where William Wallace calls his country to fight, and he ends with that famous line, they may take our lives, but they'll never... You have a... Stephen, what's the line in a Scottish accent? You may take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom. No, do it, do it. So that's what he says uh, to this thing. It's this great, riveting, cinematic speech, and he gets us all riled up for this wonderful, we're like ready to go vanquish anything which opposes us. We're skewering homework assignments and running out of our classrooms. And then he gives us our assignment. And our assignment is to give a speech opposing William Wallace, to try and convince these men of Scotland to not fight, to stay, to settle, to accept the coming invasion, to go home. And not only did we have to write a speech opposing one of the greatest cinematic speeches in film, we also had to oppose a speech that struck at the chord of humanity. It struck at this idea of freedom. And we love freedom. It's kind of this strand that holds all of history together. I can't think of a single culture that has looked at everything and been like, this is perfect. We need no more rights. We need no more freedom. We don't need to be liberated from any sort of oppression. And, and the, we all desire some additional thing. Think about it in your life right now. What is it in your life that seems to be bringing pressure on you? What is it that like, man, if I just didn't have this assignment due, if I just didn't have the first payment on my student loans? We all love freedom. We all want to be liberated. And while we love the word and we love the idea, oftentimes we don't really know what it looks like. We don't know what it is we really need to be from, be freed from, nor do we know what it is that actually frees us. And today what we're going to look at is this. We're going to look at in our quest for freedom, Jesus came not only to, to deliver us from the external enemies, but also from our internal bondage. So Jesus came to liberate us from external enemies, but more importantly, from an internal bondage. And if we want freedom to mean something in our world, a world where everyone loves the idea of freedom, but no one can agree on what freedom looks like. If we want to have a real definition that works, we need to let the God who created and saved our world define that freedom for us. 
So that's what we're going to attempt to do tonight as we look at God's word. So let's pray again really quick. Lord, I pray um, that what Maggie prayed for will be true, Lord, that you would um, speak tonight a word that is true, that is good for us. And as we gather here um, in the third week of the semester, and there's all sorts of things going on, all kinds of things to distract our minds and our hearts, all sorts of influences that weigh on us as students, as Christians, as men, and as women, Lord, we pray for this time, this, this 45 minutes we have left together, Lord, that you would uh, give us an ability to, to, to block everything out, to focus on you, to apply this word to our lives, and to see with greater clarity the freedom you bring us through your cross. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So, as we discussed, freedom isn't something that millennials decided is a good idea. It's something that all of humanity is excited about. It's not a new concept. In fact, back when Jesus walked around on the earth, this idea of freedom was still a huge driving force around the current culture, especially for those who were Jewish. Because God in the Old Testament, he promised the Jews, this, this ethnic people group, this people from the, from the line of Abraham, he says, you are going to be my special people, my chosen people, my holy race. And I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to make you into a kingdom and you'll be the greatest kingdom the world has ever known, and I'm going to bless you. However, when we read the Old Testament, that's the first kind of big meaty part of your Bible. When we read that, we see a problem. Because Israel wants the blessing, Israel wants the kingdom, but Israel doesn't want the God. They want all the perks without any sort of the obedience. They want the kingdom without the king. They want the benefit of having a good ruler without actually having to obey or follow a ruler. And because of that, they look to other rulers. They look to other things to bring that kingdom peace. They look to other things to bring that blessing. And it ends up just being a cycle of slavery. Other nations come in and they conquer the Jews and they subject them to slavery and they rule over them and they oppress them. And when Jesus walked the earth, they're under the oppression or rule of the Roman Empire. But they always had these prophecies. While God promised to make a people, he also knew that they would disobey. He knew that they would be ruled by others, but he promised a Messiah, an, an anointed one, someone who would come and who would again establish the kingdom, someone who would restore that hope, restore that special anointing and save them once and for all. And so when Jesus appears on the earth, people, this, 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 uh, he's, he says he's the Messiah and this rumor starts to circulate. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who's here to establish the kingdom and you could feel the tension rising. It's like when William Wallace walks into a village and that village begins to know that the hope has come, that there's hope for them, that they could change something. People can start to taste the freedom when Jesus comes on the scene. And just put yourself in this mindset, this mindset of hundreds of years of oppression, of waiting for someone to come and to set you free no more paying other people's taxes, worshiping how you want, living how you want, being under the perfect blessing you always dreamed. And somebody comes and he does this. I'm gonna pick up in Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 19. And he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now he begins to read the scroll, what Maggie just read for us. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so here we see this freedom being offered. These words that these people love to hear, these identities and these, these indicators of what should be happening, and they begin to hear it, but there's some nuances here. There's some nuances that are really specific. And what we want to see first here is that what this passage, this prophecy that Jesus is reading, and that we're going to see that he applies to himself, this, this, procl- this proclamation shows us two things. It shows us an old problem and a new liberator. An old problem and a new liberator. You see, in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, there is a revolt. The Jewish people tried to revolt against the secular rulers who were over them. And it worked to a a certain extent, and there was great political upheaval, and there was unrest, and there was fighting, and there was all the drama that goes into our modern uh, movies that capture political uprisings. But ultimately, it was crushed. And ultimately, their rulers came down even harder on them. But here we see Jesus saying there's a special type of ruler coming. Someone who the spirit of the Lord is upon, who has been anointed to do something unique. You see, this ruler isn't like any other king. It's not like any other Messiah. It's not like any other random dude who's leading an uprising. This is one specifically anointed by God. The God that these Jews wanted so deeply to come through with their promises, to set up this kingdom, and now he's coming and he's going to proclaim news to the poor. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. And this is unique because Jesus is God. Jesus isn't some dude with a pitchfork and a a torch running to Rome. Jesus is the spirit of the Lord. Jesus is anointed by God in a different way than any of the Old Testament prophets were. In in any of the figures that the people of Israel put their hope in, Jesus is unique because Jesus is God, taken on flesh. And so there's a new kind of liberator here, but there's also an old problem. And that problem is he came to proclaim to the poor, to the captives, to the oppressed. And while we all like the message of freedom, none of us like to ascribe ourselves to those categories. Jesus didn't come for the comfortable Wall Street execs. He went to those who were in trouble, to the poor, to the oppressed, to the captives, to the vulnerable, to the mistreated, to the ones with a big problem. And the problem of this problem is that it's not the problem that people think it is. When people hear Jesus proclaiming this freedom, they think wrongly about what that freedom is. You see, time and time again, the Jews surrounding Jesus' ministry, they become frustrated because Jesus isn't storming Rome. Jesus isn't amassing an army. Jesus is even paying taxes to the Roman Empire. How could this social revolutionary pay taxes to this debunked, debaucherous organization named Rome? He's no different than the rest of us. He's the same. And so there's this I don't know if you've read the Bible. There's this great scene where Jesus dies and he rises again. Um, and, and after he rises again from the dead, something which has never happened before, he appears to his disciples. And what is it that his disciples say to him? Look at Acts, uh, excuse me, Acts 1, verse 6, where it says this. The first thing the disciples say to Jesus, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will at this time you restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus just comes out of the grave, comes back to life, miraculously appears before them. They're like, this is it. 
We have an invisible, physical, popping around Jesus who's going to appear in Rome, deal with all the enemies, and we're going to have peace like a river. We're set up the new kingdom and the new earth. But even after Jesus rose from the dead, they had a wrong idea of what their problem was. Their problem was Rome. Their problem was external. Their problem was the political situation. They perceived a problem, but that wasn't who their biggest opponent was. And right now, oppression is a hot-button topic in our, in our country. Since Colin Kaepernick sat on a bench, instead of standing for the national anthem, it's thrust into the spotlight, this oppression against minorities that's going on. It's dominated our headlines, our Facebook feeds, our Twitter feeds, our news coverage. It's probably even in the Kaiman. I haven't read the Kaiman yet. It's probably in there. And whether or not you disagree with what Colin Kaepernick is doing, side note, I told Becca I would tell the story. Becca, I don't know what this shows about Becca's sensibilities, but she had a dream that you killed or got in a fight with him. Becca beat up Colin Kaepernick. So I don't know if it's just, you know, she doesn't like his face or if she's the social revolutionary herself. But anyway, Becca has weird dreams. Um, and so Colin Kaepernick has done this. And whether or not you agree with his actions, you can't be so blind as to say there's not some sort of oppression or injustice happening in our country. But even with that, when we step back, don't you find it interesting that regardless of race, age, location, or social status, we always find something which oppresses us, don't us, don't we, don't us. <laughs> we always find something that seems to limit us, that seems to loom over us, something which we want to be free from. And what's even more interesting is that thing always changes. In high school, maybe it's your parents' rules, your curfew, your limits on how far you can drive in your car. In college, it's the weight of your classes and the burdens of assignments. After graduation, it's the task of making student loans on time. Then it's a mortgage. Then it's taxes. Then it's your health. Then it's contributing. Then it's dying well. And the list goes on and on and on and on. We never run out of external physical oppressors in our lives. It will always be replaced by something new. And that's because physical oppressors aren't the problem. We'll never grow weary of them because they're only a symptom of an otherwise deeper problem. Our greatest oppressor isn't something that's outside of us. Our biggest oppressor is something that's inside of us. Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 6, chapter, or Romans 6 verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here, Paul says, is that there is uh, uh, this truth where you become a slave to whatever it is you're obeying at that given time. Whether it's a willing slave, whether it's someone who comes in and takes you captive and you obey them, when you obey, when you follow a command, you become a slave. And what Jesus' ministry exposes and what the Bible makes clear for us is our truest oppressor, the greatest power that sits over you, the greatest controlling factor in all your motivations, hopes, dreams, and actions is your own sin. And what Romans just said is that you're a slave to it, to death. The biggest power in your life is nothing outside of you, but it's the death that lives inside of you. Think about that. Whether you believe the Bible is true or not, which it's God's word to us, 
What it's saying to be true is that each and every one of you are being forced to do something. Control is an illusion. You are held captive from freedom and you are in bondage to some distorted sense of duty to death. And that power which, which holds you, the Bible calls sin. And you might disagree with this. Be like, I've never, I'm not a robot. I can do things. I'm, I can get up and walk out of this room right now. I'm in full control of my actions. But I want to ask you something. How many of you have ever done something you know to be wrong? Okay, all of us have, right? And you don't need, I mean, you don't need some codified moral set of rules to say we violate our own consciences, right? We all do something at some point that we think is wrong. Even if it's as little as starting the wrong guy in fantasy football, we do something that we think is a dumb idea but we do it. We lie, knowing we shouldn't lie, but it's easier. We look at the guy's paper next to us, knowing we shouldn't, but no one's going to catch us. Why? If, if we were in math class here, and someone wrote two equations, and under this equation they wrote the wrong one, and on this one they wrote the right one, how many of you idiots would do your whole test on the wrong equation? None of you would. You're free to choose the bad one, but you're not stupid. <laughs> but why is it then, then we recognize, when we recognize something is wrong, even when we have a debate in our mind as to if we should do this, you still do it. We don't do that anywhere else in our lives. So why do we do it in areas of sin? Because we yield to its power. We like to dress it up, we like to justify it, but the truth is, is when you know something's wrong and you still do it, that is a sliver of the true reality of bondage our heart is in. Whether we admit it or not, we've all said things like, I don't know what I was thinking, but that was you. You made that decision. We do things and say it wasn't us because we're under the power of sin. And that power always controls, or that power often controls our actions, frequently shapes our interactions with others, but it always, that power always shapes your eternal destiny. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And just listen to the language. Think, think of terms like freedom, like liberation. And now look at the language Paul uses here to describe our own hearts. And you. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. This is what Paul is saying. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So again, you're following. You're not leading. You're not an individual. You're following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear that language? You're following something. You're following the power of the air. You're following the desires of your mind, the desires of your body, the desires of your flesh. To those who think you're liberated, to those who think you're free, to those who think you're an original and you're, you're doing things on your own, you are trapped. We are all trapped in a power that whether we know it or not, tugs at the heart of every man, and it is a crash course with destruction. 
Though we think we are so smart and cunning because we're in a university. Though we think we're free because we're millennials. The truth is you're following the power of what Paul calls the air. Here today, gone tomorrow. Changing with the atmosphere. Always moving, never satisfied. But we have a hope. We have a hope which Jesus read in the synagogue, in the passage we just read. A hope which is not what the world tells us. You see, when faced with a conflict of power, like if we feel like we're oppressed, if we feel like we're limited, the world tells us what we need to do is discover our true self, right? We've all heard that. We see it painted on the walls of the university center. I just watched Kung Fu Panda 3 with my son last night, um, which I missed the second one apparently. And in the third one, there's this theme and there's this song that the pandas do. And the whole theme is when you find yourself, nothing can stop you. When you realize who you are, and you stop letting other people tell you who you are, then and only then will you find the inner power of Panda Chi. And as silly as it is in a kid's movie, that's a theme that adults, that scientists, that psychologists, that world rulers tell us. It politics really well. Be yourself, and that's the best thing you can be. But if you want to know a true hope, a hope that isn't tied to hoping that when people are who they are, they're really good people. Because our track record as humanity shows that oftentimes the worst thing we can be is who our heart tells us to be. But if you want a true hope, a real hope, you'll find something different. You see, our hope for liberation from the power which controls us isn't finding out who we really are, it's finding out who Jesus really is. And look at what happened at the conclusion after Jesus read this scroll in Luke chapter four. Look at what happens. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's like my favorite mic drop in all of human history. Jesus reads this great passage on on setting captives free and giving sight to the blind and liberating the oppressed. And then he sits down, throws the scroll, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. And they all marveled at him. How will this be accomplished? We want liberation. We want freedom. We want captives to go free. We want sight to the blind, don't we? Who doesn't want that? But won't we want to know how? When Hitler came to Germany and says, do you want to be free? They bought into that freedom, but don't you wish they knew how he planned on doing that? When here we have the Jesus of scripture offering you freedom, don't you want to know how? He just told us, how will men be set free? How will people be be liberated? How will we see the favor of God? because of what Christ is doing for us on the cross. Jesus himself, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that is what fulfills that. That is what brings power to the captives. This is the second point tonight. First we looked at the problem, now we look at the liberator's liberation. How Christ sets us free. You see, when Christ went to the cross for our sins, he went to war with the power which controlled us. And when he went to the grave, 
He brought that oppression with him. But when he rose again and he came out of the tomb, that power of death stayed dead. Because the only person who beats death isn't the power of death. The only person that beats death is Jesus, who is Lord over death. It died. The controlling power of sin died with Jesus so that those who are in Jesus might live with Jesus and not die as a slave to their deepest hearts. Colossians 3, verses 13 through 15 says this. And again, listen to the language. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus disarmed powers. He set aside rulers. He disregarded authority because he's a greater power. Jesus is the true liberator. And what this means for you is that if you have faith in Christ Jesus, you're now free to be something you never could have been before. Dead people aren't conscientious objectors. Enslaved people make poor revolutionaries. Whether we wanted to or not, there is a point in our life where we chose only to follow the power of sin. We were trapped, we were enslaved, we were in bondage, and we couldn't break the cycle. The biggest problem, we work a lot with, uh, or we're, we're trying to work more and more with an organization called Justice Venture International. They deal with human trafficking. And here's the thing, is we think of of slavery as something which has been abolished, but that kind of indentured servant, that bold face of slavery, though that's gone, there are actually more people enslaved today than there have ever been. And the problem is, is that they're, they're trafficked in a, such a way where through drugs or where through feeding them support, they don't actually know that they're being trafficked. They don't know they're enslaved. Their oppressors have fed them so much lies saying that this is how you live, this is what you need, This is where you're happy. And we too once lived a life where we didn't know the lifestyle we were living was a lifestyle of slavery. But then Jesus came. Jesus broke the chains that bound us and he brought us freedom and true freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Why do you think it is that there hasn't been a group of people more passionately opposed to slavery in the history of humanity than the Christian church? It's because of Christians that specific types of slavery have almost been abolished in our world. It's because of Christian organizations that slavery is being fought day in and day out in places like India and Southeast Asia and Africa. And there are other people joining the mix, but it's, it's predominantly led by this charge of Christianity. And it's because there's nothing more central to the idea of humanity being redeemed by Jesus Christ than seeing a physical slavery being imposed on someone. Because we can actually feel liberation when Jesus saves us from our sin. And when we realize that the enslavement we had to our own sinful heart was so much greater than any shackle a human could ever put on us, that drives us to pursue freedom like no one else has. Because if we can be freed from death, we can sure free people from chains. If we can be freed from a burden of sin, we can free people from sex slavery and human trafficking. Why should we be concerned about the gospel? 
Why should the gospel be better and distinct from any other influence we have in our life? Why should it shape our actions, our thoughts, and our hopes? Because we want to be free. Because we know what our heart's capable of. We know what happens in our darkest thoughts. We know the person we dread most of becoming. We know, we talked about last week, that one day we'll die, but we tell ourselves that's normal. And true freedom, true freedom comes when we're transferred from obedience to sin and we're placed under the authority of a better master. Romans 6, 17 and 18 says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms, or we'll get to that in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. So here we have this freedom, this freedom that stands contrary to the slavery we were once in. And oftentimes our freedom in Christ is belittled because you get other people, it's like, well, you still suffer. There's still pain. There's still brokenness. You're still going to wrestle with sin. You're still going to have bouts with depression. You're still going to have to endure the temptation of lust. You're not any different than me. You're going to grow old. You're going to die. Why are you so much better? Sure, you can be happier, but you can be happier doing a lot of things. Why is this distinct? Why is this different? You see, it's different because the external realities, like oppression, like death, and like sickness, those will one day go away. You see, in Jesus' death and resurrection, it proves that one day we'll rise again. In Jesus' new life, it shows that one day we too will have a new life. In Jesus being raised with wounds that do not kill, it shows that we will live in a world where there'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more injustice. The external things died in Christ Jesus. Though they're here now, they're twitching, undergoing the pains of death. But just as important as the external things, even more important to our life today, Jesus frees us from an enslaved heart. I love the book. How many of you have read the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand? None of you, a few of you, go read it, okay? How many of you have seen the movie? Block the movie out of your head, okay? Here, here's the deal with the movie. And so I'm, this is on script here, okay? Um, we, we look at... So often we look at those big picture things that we were talking about and we say Christ's freedom isn't that great because it didn't deal with those big issues. But those big issues are often not our greatest problem. And that's what Angelina Jolie got wrong when she directed the movie Unbroken. You see, she was so caught up in the war and in the torment and in the prisoner status of Louis Zamperini that she missed the true liberation that came in that book. As she wrote this story after hours and hours and hours of interviews with Louis and looking through his documents and reading his letters and talking to his family, she picked up on a completely different story than Angelina Jolie put on film. The book gets at something different. You see, for those who are unaware with the story, Louis Zamperini uh, was a prisoner of war in Japan in World War II. And there was this one uh, prison guard who, his nickname was just the bird. That's what you know him by for the majority of the book. And this bird was tenacious and picked out Louis and wanted to make his life a living hell. And you read the things that this man did to another human, it just makes you sick to your stomach. He was relentless in his pursuit of Louis Zamperini. And after the war is over, Louis goes free, the bird escapes, but there's this paragraph and it says this, 
The paradox of vengefulness is that it makes men dependent upon those who have harmed them. Believing that their release from pain will come only when they make their tormentors suffer. In seeking the bird's death to free himself, Louis had chained himself once again to his tyrant. During the war, the bird had been unable to let go of Louis. After the war, Louis was unable to let go of the bird. See, Louis escaped the war. In the book, the war is really only the first two-thirds of the book. But Louis' heart didn't escape anything. He wanted the bird dead, and he would not rest until that was true. No amount of freedom. They could raise Japan to the ground, but if the bird was living, Louis wasn't satisfied. But then Louis was home, and he had this life of discontentment. He became an alcoholic. He became a wife abuser. But then he went, and he heard the gospel, and something happened. We see this next paragraph. Resting in the shade and in the stillness, Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. And I love that line, that he believed had intervened to save him. Because here we see Laura Hillenbrand interjecting her own thoughts. She's not saying that had saved him. She's an unbeliever. But she's saying that Louis had this realization that something saved him. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm not commentating and making up this story. She's saying what she observed to happen is that Louis saw something different. She's not trying to leverage the point of Christianity. She's trying to tell us a story. And that's important because the story she's telling here is one that is attractive to everyone. You see, after his conversion, Louis still desired to find the bird. He traveled all up and down Japan trying to find him, but this time he wanted to forgive him. And by the time he reaches the prison camp, he finds out that the bird is dead. And it said at this moment when he heard this, he felt something they never thought he'd feel before. He felt compassion. He felt compassion because this man was just another lost soul. And this is what he says, or this is what Hillenbrand says. At that moment, something shifting or something shifted sweetly inside of him. It was forgiveness, beautiful, effortless, and complete. For Louis Zamperini, the war was over. Time out. If you are making a movie about a war based on a book, that's the line you go for. <laughs> but she missed it because we're so distracted by the big things. We're so distracted by the glamour. And the conversion that he experienced was the sub subtitle that came up at the end of the movie. But this is what was it, about. it was about. This is where Louis felt most free. All the days and years spent in a Japanese prison camp couldn't touch the freedom that came years removed from the prison camp. You see, it's one thing to remove the external barracks of hate. It's another thing to neutralize the heart of hate. And that's what the gospel does. That's the freedom that Jesus brings us. The liberating power of Jesus Christ shakes our heart from its death, removes from us the hate and disgust and power that's over us so that we can throw off the old life and live in a completely new way, regardless of the circumstances that are around us. This is the last point tonight. This is the life of the liberated. Look again at Romans 6, verses 13 through 14, where it says this. So it's using the term members here. That's your, your hands and your feet. Do not present your members to sin 
as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as to those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now look at this, why? For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. We live differently because sin has no domain over you. Sin has no power over you. You don't need to obey the things you used to obey. You don't need to long for the things you used to long for. You don't need to find the emptiness that you used to feel because freedom of sin is freedom from everything the world tries to throw at us because our greatest problem isn't Roman rule or Japanese persecution. Our greatest problem is that our hearts are broken and dead and Jesus came to free that. And now we have a new perspective. We're able to forgive because we've been forgiven. We're able to resist sin because Christ has resisted sin. We're able to love when it hurts because Christ loved until he died. We're able to be joyful because we know the source of true joy. We're able to say no to lust because Christ killed it. We're able to say no to self-harming thoughts because Christ has raised us. We can rise above the victim label because in Christ we are more than conquerors. We can live in newness of life because Christ brings a life that we can never lose. You see, when you understand the true freedom that Jesus brings, you understand the solvent which erases everything that humanity is plagued with. You can be different because of what Christ has done. You see, the only way people change is through repentance and faith at the cross of Christ Jesus. And you don't become a better version of you you become someone covered by the blood of Christ, chosen by God, beloved by the Lord of the universe. See, in college, you're gonna face opportunities to sin, and they're not gonna be called sin. They're gonna be called opportunities to be individualistic, opportunities to be free, opportunities to find joy, opportunities to find satisfaction. You're also gonna find opportunities to do things which you know are good, that are, that are hard, that are awkward, you're to find things you need to say yes to, which are good. You're to find things you need to say no to, which are bad. Things like sharing the gospel with your roommate. It's never easy. It might be awkward. You're going to have to say no to things that are going to make you awkward to say no to. But I want to remind you that the freedom we experience in Christ Jesus frees us from always having to choose the weaker option. We are not weak we are redeemed and freed by the God of the universe. We are different. We no longer need to live in fear of whatever your greatest fear is because Christ liberated you from that. You're scared of what people think of you. The God of the universe thinks you're great because you're covered by the blood of his son. You're scared that someone might hurt you or oppose you. You're free of death because Christ died your death. You'll live forever. If God is for us, who can be against us? See, I love uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And in the book, uh, you should read it. It's really short. It fits great in your studies. It's a short book. You could knock it out in a weekend. And it's great. Um, there is uh, this, this scene, and he's, he's in uh, hell, where it's kind of this middle ground. It's hard to explain. But the people who are there, who have come up from hell, there's, they're called ghosts because they're not fully human. They're kind of these vapors of humanity. And there's this ghost man and C.S. Lewis writes from this perspective of the beholder, and he's watching this interaction come. 
And there's this ghost man who has this lizard on his shoulder. And they hear, him, they hear uh, the lizard arguing with the man, and the man resisting and kind of pleading with this lizard. And an angel comes. And the angel asks the ghost, he says, do you want me to remove the lizard? The man says, yes! But will it hurt? And the lizard begins to lie to this man, to feed him. This is where you're satisfied. You, if you kill me, you kill you. You need me. You have to have me. You can't exist without me. This is where joy is. This is where peace is. This is where you find identity. And this man goes back and forth in this dialogue with this lizard, too scared to do anything because he's believing the lies of his captor. This lizard, this insignificant lizard, is showing possession over this man. And the angel says, do you want me to take the lizard? And a dialogue continues again between the lizard and the man until finally the man shouts out almost in pain just for a moment, yes, take the lizard. And in that moment, still uncertain, still fearful, still not knowing what's going to happen, the angel snatches the lizard off the man's shoulders, strangles it, and throws it on the ground. And in that moment, the man begins to writhe in discomfort and moan. And everything which was immaterial about that man became material. Everything which was vapor became solid. He became a new man, a true man. And the, the corpse of the lizard began to twitch and it began to change and it was transformed into a white stallion, the most beautiful horse the rider had ever seen. And the new man gets on the stallion and rides away into his new life, free from bondage. See, Jesus came to kill the lizard and to give you a horse. Jesus came to free you from the power which held you and to set you on a new life purpose, a purpose which proclaims the year of the Lord's favor that you've been reconciled to God and given a message that a dying world needs. He has come to bring you relief from your heart's bondage. He has come to give you a real freedom that William Wallace could only dream of, that he doesn't even have words to articulate. In Christ, you're free from sin. You're free from anxiety. You're free from longing. You're free from being defined by depression and lust and anxiety and loneliness and frustration. In Christ, we can say no to those things and we can say yes to something better because what controls us isn't what once controlled us. What controls us and compels us is the freedom bought for us on Calvary. And there's one way to experience it. And that's to trust that Jesus is the one who's come to liberate us. So I invite you this year to face everything the world throws at you. All the things that culture tries to tell you will bring you that satisfaction. All the vying opportunities for Thursday nights and Sunday mornings and Tuesday mornings and all those things where you feel like you should read your Bible or you should pray or you should do something. You should hang out with Christians. You should do the right thing. You should refuse to sin. You should flee from immorality. And I want you to take the words of Christ at face value. In John 8, 31 through 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The biggest truth of your life is your greatest enemy is within, but freedom is at hand. So repent and believe for we have been saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your freedom. And Lord, uh, uh, thousands of sermons and millions of words can be preached trying to describe 
trying to paint a picture of how beautiful and liberating your freedom is. But Lord, the hope of the gospel isn't something which finds its fullest in being heard. It's something which finds its truth in being believed. And so Lord, today, I pray for these 20 or 30 people who are in here, that they might know the freedom of the Lord, not because they heard the word freedom, but because their heart might be set free by the God who became their freedom. Lord, we pray that you help them to live a life of power and freedom, freedom over the vices which held us, freedom over the death that one day will momentarily claim us, and that you give us a new urgency and a new life to live differently because the lizard is dead and Christ is risen and we are redeemed. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.